You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Welcome back to Fathoms, everyone. My name is Creek, and I'm here with uh, one of my co-hosts, Seth Abram. Drew is, I don't know where Drew is. Um, he, he just keeps disappearing on us. <laughs> where did he go? Um, yeah. So today we have a guest with us, TJ Daw. TJ, we met him through Mario Socorro, who has been on our podcast. So did three whole courses with you and got to hear your wisdom and perspective of being a four, but not just a four, a four that does things related to story. So you're kind of the perfect guest for this season. So tell us a few things about yourself that uh, I may not know about you. Okay, well, I live in Vancouver, BC, born and raised. And I had a dream growing up to be an actor, to be a movie star. I was tremendously inspired by the great movies of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, which I was exactly the right age Mm. to watch growing up. And that was one of the ways my Mm. father and I bonded. So he was taking me to those movies. And, you know, when I was a little kid, sometimes just the two of us, and that just meant the world to me. Mm. And that really got me hungry for those kinds of stories Mm. and to want to participate in that world. So I eventually, when I went to college, I got a degree in theater with my goal to be an actor. But what I discovered along the way was that it didn't quite fit. I didn't want to say Shakespeare's lines or Tennessee Williams' lines. Mm. And when I looked at who my artistic heroes were, they were mostly people Mm. who told their own stories. Whether this is novelists, filmmakers, sketch comedians, stand-up comedians, and a small but at the time growing breed of theater artists who wrote and performed their own mm. work, often by themselves. Mm. So I started doing that. I started writing my own monologues and telling my own stories and expressing my own thoughts. And I put my first one-person show up on stage while I was still a theater student. It was the equivalent of a graduating project. And then I started booking tours at theater festivals across Canada. There are fringe festivals. There's, there are fringe festivals all over the world, but there's an abundance of them in Canada. And in Canada, they're organized in a very orderly hmm. east-to-west circuit. And each one lasts hmm. about 10 days. So you're in a city for two weeks, and you can progress from Montreal all the way to Vancouver over the course of a summer. And there's no the application process is by lottery or first come, first serve. There's no selection process. You're not auditioning. Oh. They're not evaluating your script or your experience. So I could get wow. my foot yeah. in the door as a 22-year-old with basically no experience. Wow book myself a tour. You have to pay to be in the festival. You have to pay to get to whatever city you're at. They put you up with a local. You have to promote your show, but you make 100% of your box office. So there's at least a mathematical possibility you can break even and sustain yourself and maybe make a profit. Right. And over the course of the next 10 years, I kept doing these festivals and kept building up my body of work. And every year I would come back with a new show and my shows were always autobiographical Hmm. stories. Hmm. And that's the foundation of my career. And I've been doing that ever since. And along the way, I started working with other people, helping them translate their ideas and their stories. Not all shows Mm -hmm. are stories. Not all shows are autobiographical stories, but many of them are. But it just became my thing to help people turn whatever's going on inside into something on stage, often with only one person, but not always, and then send that out into the world. And that's what I do now. That's my profession, doing that myself, helping others, either one-on-one or I also run a course online. About midway through my journey of touring fringe festivals, I happened upon the Enneagram. Mm. Mm. And that's when I discovered that I'm a type four and that fours very often have an investment in their personal story and are often inclined to work that gives them 100% artistic control. 
and like to do work that has their particular fingerprint. Mm. So all of these things made sense of why I had chosen the world that I, you know, the artistic path that I had. And then I started doing one person shows about the Enneagram. I did two of those and toured those around and then have since done a lot of teacher training. My partner and I, we met through the mutual friend that introduced us to the Enneagram. We've done our training together. We run workshops together and I've performed these shows and also spoken and done workshops at Enneagram conferences. And it continues to be uh, a passion of my life on par with telling stories on stage. Wow. You live a wow. really cool yeah, life. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's really amazing. Especially because I'm hearing like right. seagulls in the background as you talk. I'm like, yeah. this just feels super <laughs> idyllic. <laughs> I, I live two blocks from the beach oh. in Vancouver and a block from, from Stanley Park, which has been named, not by me, as the best urban park in the world. No way. Wow. So I'm very close to nature. And I do a lot of my brainstorming while going on nature walks. <sighs> Wow, it's, it's great to go without headphones and without company and just walk through paths, refreshed by fresh air and tall trees, and see what comes up. Mm. See what's there. That that <laughs> sounds like the place I go to when I'm disassociating. <laughs> when, when things feel too uh, disruptive in the real world. <laughs> oh man, that is amazing. I, I do have a I do have a question that uh, you were talking about how you part of your your story has been helping people tell their story on stage right i'm curious what if you have seen any patterns of like what that does for someone when they're able to put it on paper and pre- actually even then perform it what, what are any of the things that like really stand out for you about what that does for that person yeah i've worked with a lot of different people so there's no one answer to that but sure. what i've found is in general if i could name the common thread is it's freeing and it's empowering. Many, many, many people, I would say the vast majority, approach this kind of work loaded with self-consciousness and all kinds of inner critic messages of who am I to get up there and tell my story? Who am I to expect anyone's going to listen? Who am I to expect anyone is going to care? So a big part of what I do is reminding people that I care Hmm. and their Hmm. story is interesting to me. And that there are people out there who have had experiences that are parallel to theirs who would benefit from hearing their story. And that can be enough to get them across the finish line to when they're doing it. And when they're doing it, and they can really be with the experiences they're doing. And that doesn't necessarily happen right away. That can take a good number of performances. It might not happen. But if and when it does happen, when someone can stand in their truth in the moment. Literally. With what they're expressing. (laughs) yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And feel the audience receiving it. Wow. That is, and I don't say this lightly, a godly experience. Wow. Yeah. People feel like they've leveled up. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how even telling your story is one thing, but performing it is next level. Hmm. Because there's something even different about, like in a therapy session, in group counseling or in, in individual counseling, you're saying your story, you're saying your stuff, but to actually be acting it out for people is, that just sounds... Hmm. Amazing. Are you like coaxing people? Like you can do this beforehand all the time? How I just would be so afraid. It depends on what a person needs. And I go through this myself. So I've developed a bunch of tricks. Like one of my favorite ones is very carefully curating what music is playing before the show. Mm. Because the audience is probably chatting. They're not actively listening to the music. They might be, but you're alone backstage. You are definitely listening to that music. So choose not just one song, but as many songs as you need that Mm. inspire you. 
And I have literally prayed to the spirit of my favorite musicians backstage before going on stage. <laughs> That's amazing. Like, like drawing on the courage of the musicians mm. that have meant so mm. much to me. And that has given me what I need. So there's, there's things like mm. that that you can do. Mm. Uh, yeah. Another one is to absolutely picture a specific person who's receiving this show. So it might be, mm. and this is the one I always use, it might be a younger version of you that needed to hear this. Mm. Or mm -hmm. it might be an imagined person that is in a parallel situation to what you are in now or were at the time that the story you're telling takes place. Yeah. yeah. Or it could be your parent or it could be any given person. But mm. picture that person. And that can be also be a big buffer against the inner critic's uh, attempts to stop you from doing this is I'm not doing this for me. Mm -hmm. I'm doing this for that totally. person. Yeah. And suddenly there's a nobility to your purpose. Mm. Yeah. I bet the guest list too is interesting. Who am I going to invite? Mm. <laughs> who do I How want do to mean? witness? How do who do I want to witness this? Who do I want to invite to this? You know, I bet that well, might be. At a, at a theater festival, you have no control over that. It's open to the public. Mm. So anyone and everyone can come. Sure. <laughs> so for those, I mean, for those that aren't regularly performing, it, it also sounds like cur like the curating of the list, drawing upon that courage, as well as like the message, which you said the message about what your younger self would want to hear. That that also seems an, an easy translate to just everyday life of as you're trying to live your story authentically. What would the person that I admire who is what I hope to be, how would they act in this situation as well as yeah. like, how would my younger self want me to show up in this situation that would accurately, can you kind of speak on that a little bit? Yeah. Or to make it even a finer point, not just what would the younger me want, but what would the younger me not even know that they needed? Mm, yeah, mm. there it is. Because quite often I'm on the receiving end of this many, many times. And sometimes I'm on the giving end of it. And, you know, I try to get anybody I work with to be on the giving end of this too, is I'm sure we've all had moments of seeing an artist in whatever medium speaks to us the most or, or whatever medium we, this happens to happen with, where somebody does or says something and as an audience member, there's this thought of like, oh, mm. I didn't know that was possible. I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you were allowed to do mm. that. I didn't know a person could say or do that and not be taken to jail or, oh. or you know, kicked out of society mm. Mm -hmm. for owning something mm. so unflattering, for displaying that kind of emotional nakedness and courage. Mm. Yeah. Like, and until you've witnessed somebody doing it, it might not never have occurred mm. to you that that could happen to anyone, much less to you. Right. This is this is really to me striking a chord in really the gift of the four to take individuality and make it universal. Mm. Yes, absolutely. That the more um, in tune you are with your actual story, it doesn't make you part of the ordinary, but it also doesn't make you separate from the rest of the crowd. Yeah, it it connects you. Yeah, exactly. As paradoxical as that sounds, mm -hmm. yeah. The most potent example of that from my life and career is when I did what was by far the most frightening show I've ever had to do. It was the most personal, and it delved into the darkest territory, which was about ultimately the setting of of the story. And the show's called Medicine. It's on YouTube. But it's in its entirety. If anybody wants to yeah. watch it, just 
YouTube medicine TJ Daw. But the mm. setting of the story was at an ayahuasca retreat. Ayahuasca wasn't as well known then at the, as it is now. That was 10 years ago. And mm -hmm. the retreat wasn't simply ingesting ayahuasca, which is a shamanic plant medicine from the Amazon, which mm -hmm. has strong psychotropic properties, which is different for everyone and different for each person every time you do it. And there's that component, but there was also a lot of processing before and after that was led by a Vancouver doctor named Gabor Mate, who has mm -hmm. this superpower yeah. of, uh, of a dialoguing technique he calls compassionate curiosity, mm -hmm. which would help people understand what they really needed to explore. And the thing that I divulged on that retreat was something I'd never said to a single person in my life, which is that I, and I didn't quite have the language for this, so I didn't express it as succinctly as I'm about to. I have a form of anxiety that comes in the form of intrusive visions of a very disturbing nature that are sometimes mm. so powerful that they make me dissociate and faint. I have a trauma response. Mm. Wow. There, I had a boatload of shame about this, and that's why I'd never told anyone. Right. And doing the medicine brought me to my darkest place initially. Mm -hmm. I did two ceremonies over the course mm -hmm. of a week, and in the second time, absolutely brought me out the other side and I connected with everybody there and then with everybody even outside the retreat mm. and in the world. And then I wrote a show about it and then I toured the show the following summer and many, 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 many people came up to me. And right before I opened the show, again, my inner critic was telling me, you're about to commit so social suicide by doing mm. this. Mm, about half yeah. of your audience is going to walk out in disgust and never make eye contact with you again, wow. including some of your closest friends. And another part said, Maybe, maybe not, do it anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I did it, and all of those warnings were wrong. Mm -hmm. What I was met with every time I did the show from the very first time I did it was overwhelming love and connection. And many people came up to me afterwards, because I'm doing these at festivals, so I'm around, I'm easy to find, and I had endless conversations with people who'd seen the show. Many people told me how much they related to it. Not one person said, I have disturbing, intrusive visions the way you describe. Wow. But wow. they still related to it. My life right. story is also very specific. I had a very unusual childhood in a number of ways, which I went into in detail in the show. Nobody else came up and said my childhood had those same specific details. But what one person after another said was how much they related to it. Wow. And instead of that being a threat to the individuality that my type fourness values above all else, it was something far better than that, which was to belong and to be connected, yeah. hmm. and to be mirrored, and met, hmm. and to be welcomed into the human race in this intimate level that, that didn't negate pain and trauma and sadness and suffering and alienation, but included it and embraced the suffering parts of me and of all of us. It was life-changing. That is and stunning and, and beautiful. Thank you for yeah, sharing that, thank you. for real. Um, You're very welcome. I toured that yeah. show 10 years ago, and wow. I was almost in an altered state that summer in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't get I didn't get intoxicated with a single substance. I just didn't need to. It didn't mm -hmm. occur to me. I couldn't mm -hmm. imagine improving yeah. on the emotional and mental state that I was in. Mm -hmm. And that experience that summer, and I toured the show for more than just that one summer, but primarily that summer, hasn't really left me. Not 100%. Wow. I still have bad days. I still have bad months. I still get cranky, all of that. But there's a part of mm. me that will never forget, viscerally mm. remembers that experience to my dying day. Yeah. 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 I think there's, this is just coming to what coming to the surface for me is just the value of, 
you know, what, I, I'm thinking of like the, the music programs and the kinds of things that g- schools end up getting rid of when they lose money, you know, and, and why it is so vital that art is an expression we can't ever get rid of because it is, it is how, it's like how comedians get to say things that other people can't say. It's how the art at its finest and music, it's like naming something universally for the human experience, whether or not it's exactly my story is your story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, I guess it doesn't really matter. It's just saying, like you were just addressing, like we're human beings. And, and the fact that you said that out loud, you know, helps me say, ah, mm-hmm. oh, it helps me deal with my, some level of denial I may or may not have been aware of, I think. Yeah. It helps me even think it. Because yes, many people exactly. aren't even at the point of being allowed to say it to themselves, much less mm-hmm. to a therapist or a friend, much less on stage. Or totally, totally on the internet or in any artistic form. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, in a uh, experience recently, and we were talking about how one of the main ways we manage fear is through uh, denial and pr- procrastination um, and perfection. But I'm just I'm 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 realizing like as you as you deal with your fear and you perform it in a sense, you know, it it allows other people to um, act like you said access something that. I was unaware of that I needed to access, but now you've given me the capacity to to do that as well, which I actually think starts early on in childhood, whether whether our parents have the capacity to mirror something in us that lies dormant the rest of our lives or not until an artist says it for us, mm. you know. But this kind of wakes up the theme of our season is story. And one of the lines that we say is that, you know, we're getting to know our story so that we can learn to accept it. And I, what I hear you talking about is this process with ayahuasca allowed you to say something out loud and then perform it, which is understanding what story you, you were able to accept and then potentially drop, or at least to allow not to have as much power over you with, with shame and these things, uh, which is, uh, I, it makes me emotional hmm. hearing you address that because it just it names something out loud for me. Yeah. <laughs> there was no question there, but just thank you for sharing yeah. that. Well, yeah. to add to that, part of what mm-hmm. was so healing about that particular experience, the, the the first ceremony, the ayahuasca ceremony, brought me into my lowest state, like I said, and the second was redemptive. The content of the second one was the unearthing of forgotten memories of how much I was loved as a child, wow. which wow. quite often what people experience in these ceremonies is the unearthing of buried pain. Mm. Because that's not easy to live with. That's not acceptable. Mm. Fours err in the other direction. Fours overvalue their pain and rewrite their story Mm. to leave out the joy, the happiness, the love, and the holding. So those are the exact elements that returned and that I couldn't deny. And I was bathed with love. And then repeating that on stage and reliving that on stage, Mm. the most frequent note I give anybody I'm working with is tell your story in the present tense. If you Mm. tell it in the past tense, it's in the distance and you have wow. distance from it. You can control it. Whereas if you tell it in the present tense, like we often do conversationally, then you're reliving it. And there's space for the feelings. There's space for the emotions, including the difficult ones, but then also the redemptive ones. And then to do that in public, it gets amplified by the collective field of everybody witnessing it and everybody feeling it by extension because audiences are often moved yeah. by art. I mean, that's the whole purpose yeah. of it. So then that brought in a next level thing of learning to, and this is valuable for anyone, but particularly valuable for fours, questioning my story. Mm. Mm. 
learning to just look critically at what my inner lawyer wants me to believe mm. and has been burying <laughs> and says, what doesn't fit my story? Yeah. And how, how ironclad is the story that I'm telling myself? Are there exceptions? Are there gaps? And if there are, why not explore those? Mm. Mm. And then what riches are there available once you get to that point? That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I guess roughly final question and uh, yeah, we might just have to have you on another time. Um, I think we need to. Yeah. <laughs> this has been but awesome. For, for those out there that don't want to, or don't have the opportunity to go have an ayahuasca experience, what would, what would be your suggestion for them to explore the story of them? What are some practices that you would suggest? I know you've named a few, but um, what are some other ways that people can do this exercise? I believe all creative practice is autobiographical. Mm. Whether it's literally blatantly autobiographical like the monologues that I do, or whether it's something like upholstery mm. or gardening. Mm. And it might sound like I'm being facetious saying that, but I'm not in the slightest. Mm. I think every mm. single thing we do is an expression of who we are. So what I would recommend is for anybody listening uh, is just to go through your whole life story and think of some creative thing that you still do or maybe used to do or have always wanted to do and do that and mm. find some way to make that a regular component of your life, whether there's money in it or not, whether there's fame in it or not, whether it's your career or just something you do on the side, none of that stuff matters. What matters is the doing it. Mm. And if you do it by yourself, that's awesome. And if you do it with one other person or if you do it with a group or if you do it in the class, also awesome. Figure out which of those things works for you and do that thing. Yeah. And mm. then if it makes sense to you, connect with others who are doing those things. Yeah. And whether though you're connecting with others as just fellow creatives or audience members or collaborators or mentors or any of those things, that lets you share it. Yeah. And then that amplifies the experience. Wow. And mm. how can uh, people contact you, get connected with you and in, in your work? My website is tjdawe.ca. So note the ca, not yes. com, dot ca. Because <laughs> it's Canada. Because I'm Canadian. Yes. Yeah. Right. That's great. Wonderful. Thank you so much, TJ. Um, really yeah, appreciate thank your time you, man. and thank you. presence with us. You're very so. welcome. Now, before we end this episode, we wanted to give you a taste of TJ's amazing gift of storytelling. Just a quick note, in true authenticity, there are a couple four-letter words in the story, so go ahead and grab those headphones and enjoy the ride. Now, without further ado, here's TJ telling his story live on the stage at the Vancouver Story Slam. Growing up, I had a real split between my brain and my body. If there was anything in school that I was supposed to learn with my mind, I could learn it very quickly. I was top of the class. If there's anything I was supposed to learn with my body, I was the dumbest kid in the class. There were many things that came naturally to everybody else that I simply could not do. I broke my arm trying to roller skate when I was six. I flunked out of swimming lessons at age seven. I did not learn how to ice skate. I could not do a cartwheel. I still can't do these things. But the biggest gap in my abilities, the most humiliating gap of all, was my utter inability to ride a bicycle. And I lived across the street from uh, an elementary school with a field and a playground right next to a community center with another playground. And this was the early 80s when parents just sent their kids out 
unsupervised to play and stay out until dinner time or bedtime and everybody had a bike and that was a lot of what people did and whenever I was asked where my bike was and why don't we go ride somewhere I would just make up a lame excuse and scuttle back home and pretend I had something else to do and sulk in my room about how there was this great thing everybody could do but me how I was excluded from the fun that was the birthright of every kid. My father tried to teach me briefly how to ride a bicycle. He took me one evening to the parking lot of Oak Ridge Town Center, and it was just me and him and one bike. And he sat me on it, and he'd taken off the training wheels because I was seven, I was too old to be using training wheels. And he steadied me, and I had both my feet on the pedals and both my hands on the handlebars. And he gave me some momentum and just kind of sent me off, and I immediately fell. And then I got up, and he helped me up, and I got back on the bike, and he steadied me and just encouraged me and then sent me off, and I fell. And we just continued to do this again and again. He had no advice to give because you can't really explain how to ride a bike. It's not a cognitive thing. But he was a flawed bicycle teacher for a more important reason, which is that he himself did not know how to ride a bike. <laughs> and he didn't tell me this. I discovered this 10 years later. So that evening at Oak Ridge Town Center, I just fell again and again and again and got more and more frustrated and felt my frustration, my humiliation rise until I just said, forget it, I don't want to do it anymore. I hate this. This is stupid. I hate riding a bike. Bicycles are I never want to ride a bike. And he took me home and we sat in the car in silence, put the bike back in the garage, and I went to my room and just resigned myself to the fact that this is one of these things I would never, ever be able to do. So jump forward a handful of years. It's the summer of 1988. My family does a three-week vacation to St. John's. It's where my dad's from. And we're spending time with relatives. We're staying with my grandparents. And there's not a lot for a 13-year-old to do in Newfoundland in the 80s. So every day, they cart me off to my Uncle Randy's house. And I hang out with my cousin Mark, who's three years younger than me. And I'm right on the verge of turning 14. Mark's 11. And we're doing the goofy adolescent shit that adolescent boys do in Newfoundland in the 80s. Namely, not very much. There isn't that much to do. And maybe it's just because we run out of things to do, but a good ways into this three weeks, one day the thought pops into my mind and the words pop out of my mouth basically unbidden, which is to ask Mark if maybe he could show me how to ride a bike. And he says, sure. And he doesn't realize what a big deal this is for me. So we go out into the driveway and he's got two BMXs and there's no gears. I don't have to figure that out. And there's pedal brakes and they're, they're small because Mark is short, and I'm close to the ground, and he just rides like it's normal, and I try and I fall. And I get up and I get on the bike and I try again and I fall, and again and again, and we try for about an hour and I make no progress whatsoever. And then we go back in and play video games. And the next day, I, I decide, let's give it another shot. And again, I fall and fall and fall and give up and go back inside and we eat Chef Boyardee. And then the third day, <laughs> the third day, I'll give it one last chance and we try again. And Mark is just riding like it's normal and I'm watching him and I'm trying to imitate what he's doing but it doesn't make sense because how can a bike balance on two skinny little wheels? It just doesn't make sense. And I'm at that point and I can feel my frustration, my humiliation, my shame rising. I can hear those voices inside come like they always do at this point in this process, which I know too well, telling me that I'm useless, that I'm a piece of shit as a human being, that I will never be able to do this, that everybody gets to have fun but me and the bike's about to fall. And I turn the handlebars but not too far and the bike stops falling but it doesn't fall the other way, it just stops and then starts to fall. And then I turn the other way and it stops and then starts to fall and then again and then again and then it falls. But that was like twice as much as I'd ever done before. <laughs> it's like in a video game when you get much further than ever before, but maybe it's a fluke and maybe I can't do it again. So I try again and I replicate it. And Mark sees this and by the end of that hour, 
we ride out of that driveway into the street, around the cul-de-sac, to the end of the block, and take a right turn up the hill, and then turn around and coast three blocks down that hill. And I'm not pedaling, I'm marveling that I have broken the laws of physics and mastered this impossible thing that had debated me my entire life. Now, I came back from that vacation with some major changes. My voice had dropped. I had grown a number of inches. I was suddenly taller than my older sister when I got back from that vacation. But the big change, riding that bicycle. And to this day, it's my favorite way to get from A to B. And to this day, and maybe it's because I was a late bloomer with it, every time I get on that bike, every time I feel like I'm defying the laws of physics, I feel like I'm pulling off a magic trick, I feel like I can fly.